Welcome to Joy and Learning, a podcast from the Harley School in Rochester, New York. We are an independent school for nursery through grade 12, where there's always lots of interesting learning going on for us to share with you. This is the first of an ongoing series in which our head of school, Larry Fry, will speak with Harley alums. This episode is his conversation with Harmony Button, class of 99. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. It's Larry Fry, head of school at the Harley School, and I am going to be having a conversation today with Harmony Button, class of 99. Harmony, welcome back. Thank you, Larry. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Harmony and I have met a few times over the years. She is an educator whom I admire, like many Harley grads who go into uh, teaching and learning and administration and all that sort of thing. And um, Harmony is a poet, and she is a teacher at the Waterford School in Salt Lake, right? Yep, Sandy, Utah, just at the base of the canyon outside of Salt Lake. Let's start with kind of reflecting back, if it's okay with you, Harmony, and thinking about the relationship of your Harley days to the work you do now. I can't help but be curious about like what feels like it's a continuation almost or a, a picking up of a thread or a theme. Mm-hmm, of course. Um, I think for those of us who have become teachers, and I think we have a, like a disproportionate number of Harley grads who have gone into yes, education, true. <laughs> um, that a lot of us um, look back on our Harley days as kind of the um, the vision of what education should feel like and having yeah. a really clear picture of how you want to feel inside of a school helps you as a teacher and as a um, leader in education to try to recreate some of those same circumstances or same of those, uh, find the conditions that would lead to that feeling. So the conditions might be very different in 2021 than they were in 1999, which is getting increasingly farther away. Yikes. Um, It's a different century for heaven's sake. (laughs) But the feeling is very, very um, close to me that um, I I can very quickly put myself back into what school feels like, um, what it feels like to be uh, inside of a community where you feel like you belong, um, that accepts you, even if you feel a little weird. and uh, and that's what I want to bring to my classrooms every day is that feeling of belonging and acceptance, um, especially if you feel a little weird. Oh, that's so lovely. You know, um, become what thou art is, of course, the school's motto. And my predecessor in this role, Ward Gorey, in his first year as head of school, asked the jazz band to play a song that I think of as a variation on the theme. The song was Thank you for letting me be myself again. And uh, and that's when I knew, oh man, this guy's one of us, that's for sure. Um, and, um, and when you think back to your Harley experience, Harmony, is, there, is it like a sense memory uh, or sense of place or is there a specific um, you know, teacher or experience or practice that you think of like, that's, that's what I'm shooting for? Well, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, a lot of my most memorable events are potentially fireable offenses. <laughs> um, but the eccentricities, the, um, you know, I can, I can talk about uh, <clears throat> naming no names. Uh, my math class that let me literally climb out the window and go to oh, Wegmans oh to get jelly beans 
um, to avoid the one particular problem on a math class. And you know, like that kind of relationship building, it wasn't about the one problem on the math class. It was yeah. giving a little in order to build a relationship with me, to meet mm. me where I was, to make me feel like I had some agency. Um, it was a first floor window. It was not a second story window. <laughs> <laughs> and and um and I think that 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 level of eccentricity and that level of yeah. kind of risk taking within teaching is mm-hmm. something that um we talk about about a lot these days as we have to be very careful um yeah. don't let children climb out windows but at the same time how do we recreate that that kind of um spontaneity, that yeah. um, that level of um, playfulness, that kind of relationship building um, where right. students feel like um, they're coming not just to school as a recipient of knowledge, but they're coming into a place where they are seen, they are known, um, mm. they are engaged, um, and they don't quite ever know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, that's really interesting that your point, you pointed a little bit toward how I think with each passing year, there is at least a drift in American education to functionally bubble wrap every child and make sure they never get a bruise or whatever. And that's something that we have uh, really struggled to push back against truthfully. So we have, for example, a natural playground for our lower schoolers, and it's designed to be, um, you know, to kind of use the shapes that one would find in the woods, the shapes of nature and things like that. And really the idea is like, it's okay to fall a couple feet. And there will be kids occasionally who come out of there with a bruise. And what does that mean, you know? And and what's the role of that in an education? And um, how do you cultivate, as it were, pretty safe and low-level risk-taking before they start uh, walking ledges outside of windows like you're mm-hmm. apparently did in math class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's, um, that's really the heart of what it means to be an educator is walking that ledge metaphorically, right? Um, mm-hmm. That oh, yeah. you want mm-hmm. to, you need to create that productive discomfort, that productive risk-taking, mm-hmm. but at the same yeah. time, um, you need to make sure that you're with them, um, that they've yeah. got a safety net, that um, yeah. right. that they're not doing anything outside of their capacity to recover yeah. from. And so, and to me, that's the difference between um, risk inside of play and risk mm-hmm. with higher stakes, right? Um, so uh, what is the consequence of failure? Um, right. If the consequence is grass stain, um, then it's not as bad as if it's, you yeah. know, breaking bones. So, um, yeah. I think that we need to remember that um, kids are incredibly resilient, um, right. and and yet they're also really, really sensitive to the constructs that we create for them. Huh. Um, and so if you create that, that risk-taking environment in ways that allow them to be resilient, um, then they're all in, um, and they also yeah. value you for trusting them with those kind of opportunities. Right. The trust is a huge factor. Um, so I want to ask about you as an artist and how your work as a poet has shaped um, the way you think about teaching and learning. And if there are any, you know, kind of threads running back to the Harley, but maybe not, you know. Um, but yeah, as as an artist and in the risk taking that's implicit in all art making, 
you know, how does that shape the way you think about working with your students as an English teacher at Waterford? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of um, that fabulous podcast and blog, Cult of Pedagogy. Do you, do you follow mm-hmm. that? Um, and there's a lesson there where, um, boy, her name's Jennifer. I can't remember her last name. Do you remember it? No. Um, where the um, the author, Jennifer, she talks about um, dog fooding your assignments, um, basically doing your own assignments, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is a little visceral in terms of a um, name for it. But the idea yeah. is don't give your students an assignment that you wouldn't do yourself. And if you're giving an assignment that you haven't done, um, yeah. then how do you know how it feels to be a student? Um, and I think that being um, someone who considers themselves an artist and a lifelong student, um, right. I really want to practice what I preach in terms of that, um, that idea of working mm-hmm. with my students. And so a lot of times, especially in writing classes, I'll challenge myself to do the assignments with students um, yeah. or at least start it and and show them the messy draft, you know, and and oftentimes I'll show them the like 15 minutes in or the like 15 minutes and then after an hour, if I have the time yeah. for the hour, <laughs> you know, um, and so um, to show them process because really they they thrive in models of excellence but they thrive Mm -hmm. even more in models of process um and talking through how i'm thinking about it how i put things together um using the draft back function on google docs to kind of play a draft like a movie so they can see just what a mess i make of things before it it looks polished um it kind of demystifies this perfection um expectation this idea that you write like a inkjet printer where you come up with a thesis statement <laughs> and just like, nah, you know, like from yeah. left to right um create brilliance in a five paragraph essay format like that is not the yeah. human mind um the human mind is artistic huh. and messy and interesting and imperfect and really what we're doing is we are using the tools that we have to the best of our abilities um every day yeah so speaking of tools and the many which were taken away from us at the beginning of the pandemic and some of which were conferred to us through technology and stuff like that, um, you know, what uh, What do you, so let me ask first, I assume that Waterford's back fully in person, is we that are. accurate? We are, we are yeah. back in person, I am back in person too, after a year of teaching out of a closet as a fully remote teacher, full-time oh, teacher, okay. full-time parent. Yeah. Um, I wow. am back on campus um, and happy to be so. And Harmony, when you were teaching remotely, were your students back in the classroom with somebody wagging their finger at them saying, pay attention to Harmony? So this sounds bonkers, but it actually worked out beautifully. <laughs> um, so we started in a hybrid model where we had an yeah. A group and a B group and we rotated every two days because we're on an A day, yep. B day schedule. Um, okay. So and I love that people are like, mm-hmm, yep, got it. Um, when we say that, that <laughs> yep. um, uh, educators really know all the different yep. models that we could have run through. Um, and yep. so at first I had half of my class on Zoom and half in a classroom on campus. Um, And so as a remote teacher, I was always on Zoom and I had a TA in the classroom. 
who was there. So we were really kind of um, a team. Um, yeah. And uh, I did all the teaching and she did a lot of the background work for me. Um, and wow. then we met, we talked before and after class and um, we got to know each other pretty well. Um, so, yeah. and then at some point in the year, um, spring term, um, Waterford went fully um, in person. And so, and, um, and yet I was still remote. So I was um, teaching a room full of children um, wow. out of a computer screen. Um, and it was an incredibly humbling experience that I think actually yeah. went pretty well. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of shocked at how well it went. Um, but a lot of what it hinged on um, was the strength of interpersonal relationships. Um, yeah. And really what I learned by being a remote teacher um, and not being able to kind of fall back on the crutch of being um, a charismatic presence in the classroom yeah, um, right. That's because, interesting. So spell that out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so, you know, a yeah. lot of my, my strengths as a teacher might not be like organization or, um, you know, uh, predictability, but I walk in the classroom and I and I, I help you have fun um, and find joy in learning. Um, and so, yeah, right. you know, like here comes the Ms. Button show. So um, I, uh, I had to let go of all that um, because uh. I couldn't be that charismatic, in-person, um, mm. front and center teacher, um, I really had to lean into student-centered learning in a way that I thought I had been, but maybe wow. I wasn't entirely as much as I thought I was. Um, mm. And so really kind of finding a practice of um, trusting questions to, to mm -hmm. facilitate learning, um, trusting students to be to, I needed to ask questions that they really wanted to answer um, yeah. and then trusting them to do some of that work without my oversight in the same way um, and then s finding ways to hold them accountable for what they came up with. Um, so it went from an idea of kind of building an, a, a classroom chemistry to building mm -hmm. um, chemistry in one-on-one -on -one relationships. Um, yeah. And the the breakout room feature, um, the ability to just pull a kid aside, quote unquote, aside mm -hmm. in Zoom um, and right. have a private conversation that was actually private instead of kind of private in front of all of your peers um, <laughs> was incredibly powerful. And I miss that now. I really miss mm -hmm. the back channel. Um, I learned all kinds of things um, from students that they would send me in private chat messages or be able to tell me um in a breakout room and um, that really kind of bolstered that idea of relationship. Huh. Um, and if you have strong one-on-one -on -one relationships, even if you're not physically present in the classroom, it creates a strong classroom community. Um, so it huh. was uh, it was a big year in terms of my personal growth as a teacher. Yeah, well, it sounds like you learned a ton and, and really somewhat paradoxically, it sounds like, to me anyway, um, you felt like you were able to build even tighter connections with your students through the technology, that the technology wasn't an impediment, but rather kind of an enabler for that. It helps that, right? that they were starving for interpersonal contact. So, you know, yeah, yeah, their right. English teacher was suddenly cooler than they, than I used to be. 
<laughs> um, but if you are, if you're feeling isolated, uh, if you're stuck at home, um, if y- your friends are getting together, but your parents won't let you go out because oh, COVID, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Y- there was just so many layers of interpersonal dynamics that were going on that um, having an adult of influence be able to ask you, how are you? Yeah. How, what do you need from me right now? How can I help? Um, right. was incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, and mm. it's it, it doesn't matter if it wasn't in person. I felt that very strongly. Um, yeah. And I cared about those kids um, in those situations. And I yeah. knew that different kids needed different things, yeah. um, which is true all the time. But that was accentuated last year. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's that's true of teachers, too. Like different teachers needed different things throughout that time, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you said a minute ago that different kids need different things. And then you have some kids whose parents uh, were really fearful of them getting infected. And so keeping them, you know, kind of tethered to the house and other kids who were maybe running around. Mm-hmm. One of our experiences here at Harley was that the pandemic had the quality of uh, either distilling or magnifying. I'm not sure what the metaphor is. Um, what kids needed and to some extent, you know, kind of the inequitable uh, readiness that they had for learning through a computer. So first, you know, when we were completely shut down the first three months in particular. Um, and I'm wondering, like, what what has Waterford done or what have you done when you think about this question of, you know, well, did this highlight inequities in a new and different way for you? Absolutely. Um, I think personally that I'm very comfortable with having clear professional boundaries between my home life and my work life. And when all of a sudden my work life is um, is my home life and in literally in my home. And, you know, I'm there were there were days where I was running um, my advisor group with um, a one year old in a hiking backpack on my back. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She was our class mascot. And uh, you have to suddenly um, make peace with the fact that your students are going to see you as um, a far more multifaceted person um, than necessarily the tightly controlled version of myself that I can present Mm -hmm. in the classroom. And the same is true of students. And and, um, I think naming that early on was very helpful um, and saying, look, when we all get on Zoom and you have wildly different Zoom backgrounds and some of you are highlighting your, I don't know, fabulous multi-acre mountain backgrounds and others of you are kind of sharing a bedroom with your little sister, um, that that's... suddenly we're picking up information we're learning things about your home lives about your families that might make us feel um uncomfortable or make make some people feel uncomfortable what gets shared how are they in control of how they're sharing it and so um at first just talking about it inside of my classroom and saying how do we feel about this um what can we do to mitigate this um 
and coming up with shared community practices. So yeah. um, should we try those funny digital backgrounds? Is that more distracting than it is helpful? Yeah. Um, and then also having the back channel conversations be like, hey, I noticed you've had your mic off. What's going right. on? Is it because you're multitasking? Is it because um, you just woke up and you don't want me to see you? You know, what's what's really happening? Yeah. Um, and getting to the heart of some of that. Um, right. But then there's a, that's that's if you can reach a kid. And so, of course, there's yeah. also the ones that are like, I can't get on Zoom because my Internet is unreliable or I'm sharing a laptop with my mom who also is using it for work or yeah. um, just access to technology. And um, I, I trust that my school administrators have actually done a lot of work in helping students um, get the access yeah. to technology that they needed because a lot of those problems tended to resolve themselves over time. And yeah. I know that doesn't magically happen. So thank you to all right. the, the backstories that I don't know um, as a teacher. Yeah, that's lovely of you to say. Uh, that is what we're here for is really to support teaching and learning. And that is the kind of thing that we tried to do certainly here at Harlan. It sounds like they did well at Waterford, to Waterford as well. Um, was there a particular kid who you maybe think showed up for you in a different way mm. because of the pandemic or? Um, yes, yeah. absolutely. Great question. I, um, I realized that along with kind of relying on a lot of personal charisma to lead a classroom, um, there you yeah. know, there are days where my lesson plan used to be locate an expo marker um, and then <laughs> read literature. Um, and uh, I, um, I have been privileging my extroverted, outspoken verbal learners. Um, oh, wow. Absolutely. A hundred percent. So, you know, my perception of a classroom is... Um, who is physically making eye contact with me, um, who is raising their hand, who is um, excited to share in front of a big group of kids, and yeah. um, in creating multiple channels um, of communication, all of a sudden these kids started coming out of the woodwork and saying things or doing things that um, were breaking my assumptions of what kind of students they were. Um, so, um, and technology helps with that. So, um, I right. was a big fan of Nearpod, which is kind of like Pear Deck. Um, it's a interactive okay. slide um, technology that um, has a lot of uh, kind of real time discussion board esque features um, for quick feedback. So, yeah. collaboration boards um, where you ask a question and instead of being like, and and um, you in the back, you know, and calling on one person to share, all of a sudden you have comments from everybody. And yeah. you can kind of look at the aggregate of comments and say, okay, so what I'm seeing is a lot of you are talking about this. And oh, look at this. Let's look at Angie's over here, you know. Um, and so it's a way of kind of previewing what a student would have said. And yeah. so I'm still using it. Um, when I'm back in the classroom now, because I can always follow up with one kid in particular, um, or I can say, "Hey, are you guys okay? Um, are you? Would you like to say more about that?" Um, and so, mm -hmm. learning to ask actually more open-ended questions, um, just tell me more. Would you like to say more right. about that? Um, has opened up um, a lot of uh, a lot of connections with students who might not be the most extroverted or the most verbal learners. So that is really interesting. You, just to reflect it back to you, you're saying that, uh, well, let me see if this is right. You're saying that the technology had the quality of 
leveling part of the playing field because there wasn't either a social benefit or cost to one's physical presence in the classroom and your ability to make eye contact or make your classmates laugh. It was a pure question and a kind of a pure and, I don't know, asocial almost answer is, I don't know, am I getting that right? Yes, um, although I think students will always find ways of um, right. making anything social. I mean, you can, <laughs> they can make like... Totally. <laughs> um, coding social right um and so yeah. it's all about the like what's your background and <laughs> yeah 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 you have a camera on or right. off or in what way um but the idea that you don't have to necessarily speak your response mm -hmm. you can write yeah. it instead um yeah. and that the expectation is that everybody participates right. and then um and then we can yeah. always follow up on a participation on a comment um was a leveling a social leveling device because you don't have to say it in front of everybody and, yeah. it's, and for a lot of my more introverted learners or and sometimes my more neuro atypical learners um th that writing it um if i give them enough time and especially if it's asynchronous work if they're not necessarily yeah. doing it in real time um yeah. did not have that kind of flight flight freeze response of a teacher cold right. calling you in the back of the classroom yeah Right, which that is exactly the adrenaline feeling you have, particularly if you're not ready. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so uh, just just to reflect back to you, something that that we did here in the first um, in the first months of, of the pandemic, we we surveyed like crazy, <laughs> and one of the things that we learned was that there was a subset of kids for whom. Um, and not a very big one because it's Harley, but there was a subset for whom they were basically saying, yeah, remote learning, I'm good. I like it, you know? <laughs> and we were like, wow, we wouldn't have thought anybody was going to say that. But we, of course, have some kids who have a ton to say, but don't really want to say it in a normal, you know, pretty socially charged classroom environment, even as, you know, kind of loving and accepting as the rooms are here. It's still there's still a social charge to it. So I thought I thought that was extraordinary. We learned a ton about we, well, we learned a ton about what we were, you know, I think, as you put it, unconsciously privileging um, in the way we were doing our teaching through that. Mm -hmm. We had a very similar result. Um, and yeah. then some of those actually. Um, so this year I teach uh, sixth graders and seniors. Um, which is quite the split, but my seniors are quite reflective right now. Um, and one of the things that some of them have come around to saying is, you know, I thought I was good with remote learning, but it's the same way that I'm good with potato chips, right? Like, yeah, I'm good. This is totally dinner. Like, I'm learning so much. I feel great. Um, and then afterwards, they're like, actually, it's too much yeah. of that kind of made me feel icky. Um, and so... It's been a really um, in interesting um, kind of phase of the pandemic of pandemic learning um, yeah. to to come back around and say, okay, so actually sometimes I have trouble learning in a social environment because yeah. I feel a lot of anxiety or because I'm so distracted by things that are happening around me, and yeah. yet I'm also now valuing the um, the experience of being of being back um, around my yeah. peers because um, I couldn't continue to, to isolate that long. So yeah. um, it's interesting to see how that has kind of come full circle for some of these kids too. 
And do you find that either you or your colleagues in your school are uh, sort of recalibrating, um, I don't know, the proportions, as it were, of, uh, of what make up an education, the social and emotional aspects versus the intellectual versus the artistic, the, the kind of safety before, mm. um, you know, any, any kind of real intellectual or artistic or whatever challenge can take place. Have you found that you guys are rethinking that um, in any way? Absolutely. Um, personally, I took out so much. Um, it's hard to say I took out curriculum. I um, paired back. Because that never happens. Right? No. One ever um, does. no. Uh, but I, I paired back so much of the stuff of my curriculum yeah. okay. um, to make space for the the processing, the relationships, the um uh, interpersonal connections, um, the community building, the weather reports, the reflections, the yeah. polling that, uh -huh. you know, and, um, and I found out that they learned even better. <laughs> so uh -huh. why would I stop doing that if it makes yeah. them learn better? You know, that yeah. if uh, my job is not to drag them through the stuff, it's the end result. It's the efficacy of learning. And so if mm -hmm. I find tools that help students learn better, why would I give those up? Um, so I'm still I'm still making a lot of space for well-being because you got to lay the foundation of well-being before learning literally gets into your, you know, cortex, right? So yeah, if right. a student doesn't feel safe, then they're not right. going to learn. And safe feels like such a um, like dramatic word sometimes, but it's quite literally how they you need they right. need to feel um, like they have the foundation for growth. And that means um, being comfortable with risk. That means having social yes. um, social awareness kind of like dull, dull roar level so that they can think beyond it. Um, yeah. And and all of that work is essential to teaching and learning. And if we don't yeah. do it, then we're deluding ourselves um, yeah. that, no. that we're doing a good job. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. So Harmony, I've kept you on for half an hour and I don't want to go just but a couple more minutes. But um, in kind of thinking through what our experiences of teaching and learning and in my case, administering during mm -hmm. a pandemic, like how much we've learned, how it reframed so much we've thought about um, and, and how we approach things, right? Um, what it makes me wonder is, you know, in your case, if you could strip away all these limitations, the college, pre the college prep imperative, the, um, you know, the 45 or 75 minutes a day or every other day, um, if you could strip that stuff away and just put together the kind of perfect ideal um, button show, <laughs> not the button show, but, you know, putting together the perfect ideal English class, um, you know, what, what would that look like for you? Um, well, I, I love that question because it circles back around to what you were talking about um, in terms of um, the risk taking and the playground yeah, um, right, you know right. the, the idea of having um, a natural playground um, it's not the real world 
it's not real nature, but is this simulation of the circumstances under which you would experience nature. And at yeah. its very best, that's what school is. You know, a school is just a tiny yeah. bit of a bubble because there's a safety net. You know, there are still yep. playground monitors. You know, somebody made that tunnel before the turf grew over it. You know, we have, in our natural yeah. playground, we have um, large chunks of um a huge tree, you know, but it's been sanded. Yeah. There aren't any sticks that you can actually impale yourself on. Um, and so the metaphor here is that school is school is um, the real world, but without any danger of like impalement. Right? That's really good. School <laughs> is like a natural playground. It that's natural very playground. good. And and yeah. um, and and that's why. Um, school is the is the solution to the fact that our world is on fire right that we are building yeah. people who are experimenting with creating a better world than the one that we are currently yeah. living in and if they yeah. are not experiencing that that level of playfulness where they can design they can iterate they can invent and have fun doing it and feel the joyfulness and the meaningfulness of that mm. play um then they won't how do we expect them as adults to make a better world yeah. You know, I and I can't help it. I have to ask another question because you just made me think of one. And that is that you, you know, I, I'm picturing um, uh, the Salt Lake area mm-hmm. and um, and the Finger Lakes. And they look pretty different in my in my mind's eye. And one has smoke over it and one does not <laughs> at the <True>. moment. <laughs> and I'm wondering about how that has shown up for your kids in terms of... Um, you know, the kind of concerns that they carry with them, or for that matter, the way you guys are thinking about what constitutes, you know, an education in light of, you know, the West is feeling the intense effects of climate change in a way that's a little different than it is up here. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that some of our students are um, straight up angry right now because they feel like Mm. the adults of this world have kind of failed them. Um, and that they are inheriting, they are inheriting a world that um, is in need of some serious overhaul. Um, and yeah. that different students experience that anger in different ways. And some of them are like straight up social justice. Here we go, like bring it on. And others are like, I'm going to care about nothing because you ruined it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, That's um, not an insane response. If you, if it seems like it's always kind of spiraling downward. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, the best thing we can do is teach them to care and teach yeah, them exactly. um, that they do, they are powerful um, yeah. and they have access to, um, to um, systems of change. And part of that is making sure that education is connected to the outside world, which is something I know Harley does really well. And um, yeah. even in small ways in my English curriculum, I've started to build in the last step of an, of an assignment is the, the outside world. So after you've written your essay or personal essay mm-hmm. or whatever it is, um, where right. is it going next? What are you going to do with it? Is there a contest you're going to submit it to? Is it an op-ed? Are you going to turn it into right. um, a story that you're going to tell um, at the local moth um, radio hour, which is actually yeah. called The Bee in Salt Lake. Oh, um, wow. So um, what are you going to do with that? Where is it going? What do you want? Who's you, who are you going to share it with? Um, and yeah. so connect to the outside world um, because that makes you feel capable and powerful. That is beautiful and a lovely uh, note upon which to draw our conversation to a conclusion. So this has been a conversation with Harmony Button, English teacher at the Waterford School 
in Utah and uh, proud, I think it's fair to say, alumna of the class of 99 at the Harley School. Harmony, thank you. Thank you, Larry. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. And I'm glad we get to talk to each other once a year or so. And I I hope we'll keep that up forever. I sure hope so, too. All best to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Joy in Learning, a Harley Schools podcast. We look forward to sharing interesting stories, discussing educational topics, and exploring ideas with you on our next episode. See you again soon.